I've had, I've had people in the past ask me, why not do a Mother's Day sermon? And so let me explain to you. This is what a Mother's Day sermon tends to be. You should do better as a mother. That's not a Mother's Day sermon. That's not helpful. That's not, you know, that's the last thing our mothers need is to be beat up before they go to church or before they go out to eat the meal of their choosing, right? And so um, I, I've just kind of committed myself to not do that. But what I would like to say is the best way that we can honor our mothers is by honoring the God that many of them serve. For those of us who have had mothers that have, and grandmothers that have taught them the faith, we see examples of, of Timothy and his mother and grandmother who taught him the faith that he holds dear. And that's what, that's what keeps him going as a, uh, as a servant of God, as Paul's disciple. And so today, as we go through this message, I want us to be encouraged to live a holy life that we might honor God, and in so doing, honor our mothers who taught us to serve this great God. So today we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And as we begin thinking about this, I kind of want to remind us before we read this of where we've been and kind of where we're going. 1 John is an epistle written to assure believers, right? It's a, it's an, it's a, it's a letter written to this church to help people understand they are true Christians. They are believers in the faith. And as he sought to give them this help and this evidence, he gives them three evidences that their faith is genuine. He gives them this idea that their faith is genuine if their belief is genuine. If they believe the truth that is in the Word, and we talked about that as an affection for the truth and understanding that. And then we saw the evidence that that John gives as he's working through this this, uh, glorious book of the way we live, our moral conduct. The way we live says something about what we believe. And then we saw the way we relate to one another as an evidence that we are born-again believers in Christ. Last week, we, um, we began looking at verses 12 through 14, and we saw how even though we're all working towards maturity, we're not all in the same place. And we should have somebody in front of us that we're looking to and somebody behind us that we're bringing along. That's, that's how the Christian faith should be. And, and we saw, saw that expressed in this children, young men, and fathers of the faith. But today, John is, is going to take all those evidences and he's going to begin today and next week talking about warning us about what can sidetrack us. If we have such a great faith, such a great father, we have belief that is unshaken, we have have a, a moral conduct that always seeks to do the right thing, to obey God's commandments, we have a love for one another that is unlike any others, then what is it that would cause us to fall away from the faith? And we see that in our verses today. We see that in in verses 15 through 17. Now, when I start, if I were to ask you today, would you describe your mother as loving? Okay. All of you men would say, amen, right? All of you children, amen. You don't, you don't want to get in trouble on Mother's Day. And so you, you, you would want to say, yes, she's loving. We typically think of a loving person as someone who gets along with everyone, right? And does everything. But what if I told you 
What if I said, my wife is so loving because she hates so well? (laughs) Y'all would look at me like, what is he saying? Does he know English? Does he know what hate means? Does he know what love means? Because we don't typically put love and, and hatred together. But we do in practice. Now you children, if you were to look at your mothers today and and you were to look at them in the face and you were to say, I love you so much, Mom. I thank you so much for all that you've done for me in this life. And then you turned the other direction and looked at another mother that didn't raise you and you said, I love you so much. Thank you so much for all that you've done in my life. What do you think your mama would do? My mama would slap me across the face. What are you doing? I'm the one that raised you. I'm the one that put up with your trouble, right? I can't, I can't say the same kind of affection for, for both individuals at the same time. Or you men, imagine when you were dating your, your wives, you look at your wife with those puppy dog eyes and you say, because I know this is how you all talk, you look at her and you say, I love you more than the stars in the sky, the fish in the sea, and the air that I breathe. And then you turned to the, her best friend next to her and said, I love you more than the stars in the sky, the fish in the sea, and the air that I breathe. What would have happened? You would have been slapped, right? Now, I use those silly illustrations to say, when we say we have this affection, this love, this, this cherishing for one individual, it automatically means that I don't have that for something else. If I say that I love my wife with my whole heart, then that means I automatically hate those things that might might hurt her. I automatically don't want those things because my love for her determines my my hatred. Right? This is it's natural that we would live that way, but yet we don't want to consider it when we when we look to these things. I can say that I love my wife and my children because they're not competing against one another. I can say I love pie and coffee because they are perfect mates, right? But, but if something were to impinge on my love for those things, then that is when my dislikes come out, right? That, that is when, that is when uh, I can't love both things. Jesus is very clear about this. Love cannot compete with another love. That's why Christ says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I spend a longer time on this introduction because I want us to point this out. Our society tells us that if we are loving, that means we automatically have to agree with everything. We automatically have to love everyone the same way. We have to, we, we, that, that necessitates that, we, that we, nothing is changed there. There seems to be a mentality that if you don't love something, then you don't love those people who practice it. When God's word would say that because we love something, it means we hate something, and that something that we hate is sin. If we love God, we will despise the world that is at war with him. With that in mind, let's read 1 John two fifteen through 17. He says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. When you and I think of love, we think of things that are getting along. However, John, inspired by God, is talking about a love that doesn't mingle well. It doesn't get along with other loves well. He's talking about this love of the world. In verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, that may not stand out to you. 1 John isn't that long of a book. I would challenge you, you could probably read through it fairly quickly. I mean, you, in all honesty, you could probably read through it in about seven minutes a day. You could read this book every day. It's about what it would take you to just, at an average pace. If you're a slower reader, ten minutes a day. We, we, some of you may brush your teeth longer than that. Okay? It doesn't take much to read through this every day and get familiar with it. But if you were to read through this every day and get familiar with it, this is one of ten total commands in 140 verses. First John, John is not a command guy. He's a truth guy. He's a light guy. He wants to shed the light. Whereas Paul seems like you know, he'll have command after command after command stacked on one another. John chooses his commands very particularly. And this is one of ten in these 140 verses. So, maybe I could illustrate it this way. This kind of reminds me of of Valerie's grandfather. He was mo- the most easygoing guy you could imagine. He didn't raise his voice. He didn't bark commands. That being said, if you talk to any one of his children, one of them is here today, and if you talk to any one of his children, they would say this, when he spoke, you listened. Because while he didn't do it all the time, he wasn't constantly barking commands. When he spoke, you knew that he was serious and, and he meant it. You, know, you and I are like that. There, some of you guys, you don't, you, you, you're not very talkative. And, but when you say something, it, you, you're meaning it. That, that is why you say it in that moment, in that way. This is what John is saying. He, he doesn't give a lot of commands. He doesn't give a lot of to-dos. He doesn't give a bunch of checklists. That's why I've warned us about making this a to-do list. But here he gives them this command, and they better listen. This is the command, don't love the world or the things in the world. Don't love the world or the things in the world. Now, there's been a lot of people that have taken this the wrong way. When he says, do not love the world, does he mean that we don't love the earth? You know what? I'm not supposed to love the world or the things in the world, so I'm just going to go about trashing everything like a like my eight-year-old likes to do. We're just going to go around and, 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 and break stuff. Go break trees. And, and, and um, the opposite of tree huggers, right? The tree breakers. That's what he means here, is that we hate all things in creation. I don't think that's how John means this here. He doesn't mean that we hate the world that way, and I say that based on the rest of Scripture. I'll just give you one verse. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It's God's creation. The things that we've been given, God wants us to cherish. Psalm 19 says that we can see God's Word declared in creation. Creation is a beautiful thing. He doesn't mean we hate creation. Well, 
John elsewhere uses world to describe people in the world, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? So now John's telling me Jesus can love the world, but I can't. I can't love the people in the world. There are a great number of very bad pastors that take this passage to mean that. That I don't love people that are outside the church. That is not what this passage means. Now, I know most of you are not thinking, well, that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. But that's how sometimes we are tempted to act, is if they don't belong to us, then we don't love them. That he only talks about a love of the people inside. But we already know that an evidence of God's people is their love for others. So what is it that he means by this love for the world? What is it he means here when he says, do not love the world? He means, do not love the things that are falling apart in the world. Do not love these systems. Do not love this this sin. And we can see this by how he's going to clarify that in verses 16 and 17. But at this moment, we need to understand that he's not talking about the world in creation or the world and the people of the world. He's talking about this, this world that's passing away. This world that will not last. And when he says love, he's talking about ultimate affection. One commentator says this, the devotion of the heart is to be oriented in these redemptive directions, all of which lead back to God himself. Conversely, believers are not to love or set their affections on or uh, any other object or allurement of the world to distract them from full engagement to God's grace. Put it this way, we must love God to the detriment of everything else, not love everything else to the detriment of God. Does that make sense? When when you and I love God above everything else, that means we love His commands, we love His people, we love doing His will, we love studying His Word. Why? Why? Not because all of those things are great, which they do have greatness in each of them, but because God is great. John is is not pitting everything else against God. He's pitting the affection of everything else against the affection of God. When we place those things of the world above God himself, like a man looking, turning his back on his wife and looking to another woman and placing his affection on her, that is what you and I do when we turn from God and look to these other things. And you say, well, how can you say that? Because James 4.4 4 says that. James 4.4 4 says this. You adulterous people. We all know what an adulterer is, right? I don't have to explain that. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Loving anything else above God is, by definition, idolatry. Anybody here remember the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other God before me, right? When we love anything else above God, He is a jealous God. When we love anything else above Him, then we, by by nature, are hating Him. The things that we enjoy in life must be enjoyed because we love them through God. When you and I love our mothers, 
It is because we love them through God that God would give us the, these women in our lives. That God would, would cause them to do these, these things and teach us these ways in our life. When you and I love eating, when we love food, who here doesn't love food, right? Maybe I shouldn't mention that because then we'll start getting hungry. But when we love food, it's not wrong to, to enjoy a good meal. It's wrong to enjoy a good meal at the detriment of your God. To place food over your God. And you're like, well, I wouldn't do that. I'm pretty sure gluttony is a sin in the Bible, right? Of which I, I myself am tempted. I have to remind myself when I'm not hungry, I don't eat, Right? Uh, it's, it's a sin. I'm just being honest. Anything that we place above God can be in this way. This is what I was talking about earlier when I was talking about turning our backs on our wives and speaking love to another person. We do this to God when we love the things of this world more than we love Him. Are your affections torn between the things of this world and God? Or is your love for God only applicable when it doesn't interfere with your love of the world? You're in danger. You're in danger. So he's going to go on, John's going to go on to make this clear in verses 16 and 17, what he means here. And so in verse 16, he's going to define for us what it means to love the world. This is what he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. For all that is in the world... And he uses these three phrases to describe it. The desires of the flesh. This is just your bodily cravings. Hunger. Thirst. This is, this is those things that you naturally want. That your body desires. Your, your, your desire for sleep. Now anybody who's ever gone through midterms in college just knows exactly what I'm talking about. You get to the end of those midterms, and you better anybody that offends you better watch out. Because your desire for sleep will over, supersede everything else, including how you treat other people. Right? Does sleep, it's a natural thing. Is there anything wrong with sleep? No, but when I crave sleep more than I crave God, then I am loving the things of this world more than I love Christ. The desires of the flesh are those things. The desires of the eyes... This might also be defined as covetousness, which is another commandment, right? Shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So one of the key ingredients to coveting is lust. It's a, it's a, it's a desire of the eye in which you, which you look for these things. You, you, you lust after these things. So you, you drive by somebody's house and you see their nicely manicured lawn and, and, and you want that to the detriment of, I'm going to sacrifice everything else to that. And some of you are looking at me like, that makes no sense. Just, I mow it when I have to, right? Um, others of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, you, when you drive somebody's house and you see their new car and you think, man, I really wish we could afford a new car. You know what? I think I'm going to go um, so deep in debt that I cannot see the day, that I cannot spend time with my family, I cannot honor God by going to church, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give away all of those things because I want a car like theirs. That, that this is desires of the eyes, coveting, covetousness, covet. it's the most difficult word in the world, covetousness, covetousness, 
I don't know. Everybody say it if I know. Just tease. Um, this, this is the idea of the desires of the eyes. So we have the desires of the flesh, these natural cravings, the desires of the eyes, and then we have this pride of life. Arrogance. It, it is without, um, without um, disagreement that most believe that this, he's referring to possessions. Pride in possessions. But I don't think it's limited to possessions. I don't think it's limited to having things of this world. That's how most people would take it. I, but I think it's, it could be directed towards possessions. It could be directed towards accomplishments. It could be directed towards skills or anything we take as something that belongs to us. You can pick the person out that this describes in a moment. When you go to them and you ask them life's greatest accomplishment and they're like 60 years old, and they talk about the one time they had a great play in football when they were in high school. Right? That's this person. When when they, they have to think about their accomplishments that are, are way back then because they're holding on to that as identity. They're, they're holding on to those things as, as pride, as arrogance. When we take anything and, and make it belong to us, our accomplishments, our possessions, our skills. This is what it's talking about. All of those things are God's, and we steward them. We are, we are, we are God's stewards in that way. We own nothing. And so this is, when we take anything in this life, in this world, and make it ours, and take pride in it as though it were ours to take pride in, this is its description. Where do these things come from? Well, not from God, but from the world. Let me see if I can't take you back to a story. Anybody here ever heard a, a Old Testament story about this man and woman named Adam and Eve, right? And in this story, the creepiest thing happens. This snake comes up and talks to her, and she listens. At that moment, why didn't she think something is wrong here, right? At that moment, why didn't... We don't know why, but she didn't. And the snake, more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat the... Uh, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman, now this is giving her reasoning. This is why she ate the apple. So for those of you who have asked this question, why in the world would Eve do this when God told her not to? This is why. Listen carefully. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it fed her flesh, right? A natural craving. It was good for food and that it was a Delight to the eyes. It looked like something that she wanted. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The temptation that you and I face in, in, in 
lusting after things of the flesh, desiring things with our eyes, or pride in life, goes all the way back to the garden when this nasty little serpent came up and tempted Eve, and Eve didn't do what God commanded. She loved those things more than God. Goes all the way back. Nothing is new under the sun, Solomon says. The sin that you and I experience, the temptations you and I experience, though they may be different in form, are the same in kind. Though the details may look slightly different, we are tempted in the same way. We are tempted by our flesh, by our eyes, by our arrogance, just like Eve was. This is nothing new. Satan has used these things to tempt people throughout the centuries. What about Christ? Remember the desert, right? What were the temptations he gave him in that moment? Think think about it for just a moment. He said, you're hungry? 40 days, no food, no water? Turn the stone into bread. God said... That anything, you, he could do anything, right? No, I know my food is not bread alone, but by living by the word of God. Christ then is tempted by Satan, takes him up on a high mountain and says, throw yourself down from here and all of this can be yours. He's showing him all of these things. This can be yours. I don't, I don't need that. Do this and I will bow down and worship you. I don't, it's not about me in this moment. Christ, same temptations, but he does something much different than you and I. He is without sin. And you know what? That sinless Christ who was tempted in the same way didn't do any of these things. And yet he stands in the place for you and I when we mess up in all of these ways. John is warning us not to follow in the steps of Eve and Adam, but to follow in the steps of Christ and resist these temptations. Resist these temptations, for it is not from the Father, but from the world. The the life that we live is giving evidence to where we are born from. We can either be children of of wrath, right? That's what Ephesians calls us, or children of, of God. And the way we live depicts that. This this is what he's saying. Live a life that is not from the world, but from the Father. One that exemplifies that. Do not be tempted in this way. So he's going to further clarify this by discussing the consequences of this love in verse 17. He says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away along with its desires. This reminds me of what Christ says. Do not store up things where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal store up treasures in heaven, right? He's not saying, John is not saying anything new, but he's reminding them that the consequence for this love is not what they think it is. How many of you have ever, ever heard the phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins? Right? I know people that that is their mantra in life, right? 
That, that, that is what the code that they live by. He with the most toys wins. He with the most toys dies with nothing. That's the reality. I, which of you have ever seen, and, and I think there could be a business in this, so if anybody is wanting to, to start a new business, you need to get with um, the Elliot Gentry Funeral Home down here, and you need to start this. I, which of you has ever seen a U-Haul being pulled behind a hearse? Anybody? Now, I think there could be a business in this because there are so many individuals that think they're going to take what they have into their grave with them. I got this news for you. You would need a much bigger vault and we would need much bigger uh, uh, cemeteries. There's not enough room. It's all going to go away. It's going to be Meaningless. And I use that, that silly illustration to point out that this is pointless. Peter says it like this. He says, all flesh is like grass, and it's glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. But that's not where he ends. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word, this is the good news that was preached to you. That's why John here goes on to say in agreement with that, whoever does the will of God abides forever. God's word dwells forever, and those who dwell in it share its destiny. Let me put it this way. If today you had the opportunity to invest the rest of your life's earnings... Okay, you could have all of the re- you knew today what the rest of your life's earnings were, and you can invest it. That would be a great thing, right? You know, just you, are, you know ahead, here's my earnings, I'm going to invest this. Right? Which one would you rather invest it in? A company that you know will disappear in 10 years, or a company that you know will exist beyond your lifespan? Well, that's a no-brainer, right? The one that's going to exist beyond me. That's where I'm going to exe- invest it because I don't want to lose, and lose my money. Why is it then that no-brainer is the case, but so many believers invest our lives in things of this world that we know will fade away? We know will not last, but the things that will dwell to eternity, like His Word, we don't invest our lives in. This is the crux of what John is trying to get across. He's being nice here as he leads into this point, and he's trying to, in a pastoral way, gently remind them that the things that you might be tempted to seek won't last. Teenagers, a job with lots of money is not a guarantee. It won't last. If that's your life goal, you will fail. Now you say, well, how can you say that? Well, because there's going to come a point in your life when that job will mean no more. And if that's what you're defining your life by, you will have nothing when it's gone. Yeah, you may have a few bucks in the bank. You may have, you may have a, 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 few, um, a few toys to show for it. But your life will be left empty and meaningless. The thing that we need most is not those things. We need the love of God. Mothers, if you're parenting your children, fathers, if you're parenting your children so they grow up to have nice things, 
to have, quote, unquote, a better life than you. And who knows what that means. Then you're investing in your children the wrong thing. What we need to invest in our children is the thing that will endure beyond our life. My grandmother is, is no longer with us. She, she was the woman that led me to Christ. She not only led me to Christ, she led others in our family to Christ. That woman still, her legacy still lives on. You know what? The money that I was given when she passed away, though very little, was gone in no time. The, the children that, that gained money, you know what? It's not there anymore. The house is, is falling apart. The, the, the things are, are gone. They're null and void. But you know what isn't? Is the truth that she instilled in me. Now, this is what John is saying. If we're going to invest in something, if we're going to dump our lives into something, let's dump our lives into an affection for God, not affection for things that are going to pass away. Let's not teach our children to love stuff. Let's teach our children to love God and serve God with their stuff. This is, this is the, the truth that will keep us, it will guard our hearts when temptation comes, it will guard our hearts when we get to next week, when, they, when the Antichrist come, when, when those who come to lead us away from Jesus, this truth is what will keep us and guard us. These affections, this, this love of stuff and love of the eyes and pride in life, it's all going to pass away. But the word of God endures forever. Let us invest our lives there. So let me end with this one last question. Where have you placed your affections today? Is it in something that will last for eternity? Or is it in something that will last for a season? Let's bow to our great God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all the many blessings that you've given us. We thank you for mothers. We thank you for the, the, the cars that are sitting in the parking lot that allowed us to get here to worship, the freedom that our country has that gives us the opportunity to sit here, this building that is before us that is, that is air-conditioned and, and has comfortable seats and, and, and this, this place in which, this community in which we work. And we thank you for all of those things, but we ask that we, you would not be tempted, that you would keep us from temptation to make those things our God, but to make you our God and honor you in the way we care for those things. May you be honored in our affections today. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen.